Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jessica Much Mackay. This morning, the Minister at the heart of Hawke's Bay's recovery, Stuart Nash, joins us live. Then, National lays out its alternative policy to Three Waters. Does it have the solution for our struggling water infrastructure? And later, in an exclusive interview, Fiji's new Prime Minister, Setaveni Rambuka, tells our Pacific correspondent why he's been clearing out officials associated with Frank Bainimarama's regime. How long can you uh, continue uh, living with cancer? But we begin today with Forestry Minister Stuart Nash. With slash and other logging debris still heavy on the ground, how will the government respond to preventing it happening again? Stuart Nash joins us now live. Thank you very much for being with us this morning, Minister. First of all, you're in your hometown morning, of Napier at the moment. Very well, thank you. You've been battered there over the last two weeks and we've seen even more rain in the last 24 hours. It looks like it's clearing up a bit now, but what's the latest on the ground? Uh, well, uh, yeah, the, a beautiful bay day, as you can see behind me, but it belies the devastation. Uh, that has happened to Hawke's Bay. About 30% of the horticulture crops taken out, about 11% of the, of the vineyards. Uh, no, yeah, Esk Valley was evacuated on Friday, uh, just as a precautionary approach. A uh, bit of rain, but, but you know, nothing serious. However, the devastation is very, very real here in Hawke's Bay. There's no doubt about that. How hard is it for you, being the minister, but also being part of the community? It's your family and your friends who are feeling that. Does that make it different for you? I don't know if it does. I mean, everyone mucks in and, and helps everyone else. And, uh, you know, we're, we're a, a Hawke's Bay community is, is I was going to say, is very resilient. But there are people who have done it incredibly tough of that, there's no doubt. But there's also people out there who, you know, have shown amazing examples of generosity, of, uh, you know, in terms of their time, in terms of their resources, opening up their homes, providing uh, money, uh, just getting out there and helping as and when is necessary. I want to talk do, about... Right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I want to talk about forestry now because that mm -hmm. is something that has been quite dominant as the minister responsible for this area. You've now agreed mm -hmm. to an inquiry after repeatedly saying no thanks, in fact, several times this year. Mm -hmm. What's changed your mind and what's triggered this now? So two things. First of all, I said that I didn't believe there should be inquiry into forestry. I did believe, and, I, and this is what we've instigated, there should be an inquiry into land use on these highly erodible soils in the Tairawhiti district. Hence the reason why Minister Parker, David Parker, as Minister for the Environment, and myself as the Minister for Forestry are the two sponsoring ministers. We also heard, though, 10,000 Tairawhiti residents who delivered a, a petition to the Gisborne District Council saying things must change. We heard that, we, we agree with them, uh, hence the reason why we have set up this ministerial inquiry. But didn't you only just agree to them because of political pressure over this? Not at all. We need to understand what's going on. And keeping in mind, this isn't a, this isn't a review into forestry, even though forestry will play a significant part. It's a view into land use on these highly erodible soils. Look, look as the Minister for Forestry and as a, someone who's worked in the forest industry, I do believe that forestry has a really important part to play. However, what we do need to know is what sort of trees, what sort of management regime do we need to put in place? Where should trees be planted and where shouldn't they? But most importantly, how we move forward in a way that mitigates the risk of damage that we have seen up and down the beaches, which we all acknowledge is totally unacceptable. 
But come on, Minister, isn't it really all about this problem of slash, though? You've had two reports before, one in 2018, which had recommendations about forestry slash, another in 2022, you got advice back from that. You've now had this big cyclone that's pumped a whole lot of attention onto you, and now you're agree agreeing mm. to an inquiry. Why now? Why not just use these other two reports that you've already got? Well, actually, just a whole lot of the recommendations out of those reports have already been implemented. I mean, a number of the forestry companies have actually retired forestry into the permanent forest category that originally were planted for harvesting. A number of forest companies have replanted uh, radiata with indigenous forests. Uh, they, they are looking, or they have actually taken a whole lot more slash off the skid sites and the crow's nest than they did in the past. I mean, forestry companies know that they only operate with social licence. And they also know that that social licence on the East Coast is very tenuous at this point in time. But keep in mind, you know, about one in four families up and down the East Coast rely on the forestry and wood processing industry. So, you know, it's not about saying we're just going to lock this up and leave it. It's about saying how do we do this in a way that is sustainable but also meets the expectations of our local communities. And we all acknowledge things need to change. It's the reason we're putting this inquiry in place. We are moving forward. We understand the issue. It's about seeing what the recommendations come out. And the three people on the panel are incredibly uh, able, highly competent, and I'm looking forward to seeing the recommendations. I want to pick up on a couple of things you just said then. The first is, if lots of the recommendations are mm. already in place, why do you then need a two-month inquiry mm. to tell you more recommendations? Because we just need to see if actually what we've, what we've put in place is working. Now, Jess, let me give you just a two-second overview. There's a number of different types of forest and management regimes. You've got forests that are planted for production, i.e. there to be harvested and go to mills or, or go to ports. Then you've got permanent forest category. Those are trees that are planted never to be harvested. And then you've got your exotic forests like your radiata, you've got your indigenous native forests. What we need to find out is if in fact we've got the right forests with the right management regimes in the right place. I do believe that forestry for a number of the issues we're trying to solve on the coast is the answer, but we just need to make sure we've got it right. We've got three experts in to give us a series of recommendations and see where we go from there. Why has it taken you so long to try and compel the industry to act? And are you guaranteeing that you will do that after this two-month inquiry? Look, there's a, there's a number of um, reviews going on in the forestry sector as it is outside of this inquiry. There's something called the National Environmental Standard for Plantation Forestry, or the NESPF. That is being reviewed at the moment. In fact, submissions closed in December of this year, even though we've, we've left it open so the Gisborne District Council can put another submission in. There's a view of the, the permanent forest category. There is a lot of work going on in the sector, and that, that work has been continuous. A lot, a lot earlier than 2018, but certainly it has progressed at a, at a rate or not since 2018. But a lot of this is a long burn, Jess, there's no doubt about that. A lot of what we've seen is actually trees that have come down as erosion events when you just get massive dumps of rain like we've and seen. And I want so, to talk about you know, we that. We need to look at things like slash traps, etc. That's exactly what I want to talk about. Let's pull up a picture now of a slash mm. trap for anyone who doesn't know about that. Minister, you won't be able to see this, but for viewers at home, they'll be having a look at that now. It's basically a whole lot of um, mm. large, big railway irons and wires. And effectively, it's a big net mm. to stop the large amounts of debris mm. coming down. Now, we understand that mm. to put these in place, you need a consent, and that councils have been taking 
way too long years in some instances to approve those. Is that something that could be done instantly, Minister, to try and stop big chunks and big logs going down? Well, it's certainly a very, uh, it's a very important conversation that the Forest Service has to have with the local council, that has to have with the industry and key stakeholders. I mean, I'm keen on these things. Um, so why not, so why not sure do something about this? Place, Two years is ages. Well, the you know, that's actually the preserve of the, uh, of the Gisborne District Council. But we're very keen to work with the District Council to ensure that they have the resources to put these in place. Will you do something about this, Minister? Uh, Jess, I am very keen to ensure that what we are seeing on the beaches of Tarawhiti does not happen again. So I am very keen to do whatever it takes to, to, put, uh, to limit the amount of forestry slash or woody debris that flows onto the beach. You know, I understand the issue. I understand that the people of Tairawhiti, rightly so, feel really aggrieved about what they're seeing on their beaches and come down their rivers and, and in some cases onto their farmland. It is the reason why we've acted, I think, at speed, but we, but you know, there is more than just a review. We're doing more than just waiting two months to see what the um, review panel comes up with. We're keen to move at pace to ensure when the next rain event occurs, you don't see the level of debris on the beaches that you've seen in the last two rain events. Minister, I want to talk to you about money. Do you think that the forestry industry should be compensating councils and also homeowners? I want to give you a few examples today, uh, some numbers that our team has put together. Ernstall One has plantations in the Gisborne area and it's owned by a billionaire family in Malaysia. Um, Forest Enterprises Limited says on its website, everything we do at Forest Enterprises is about maximising the return to our investors. Roger Dickey NZ has around one point one and a quarter billion dollars in forest assets and in 2019 mm. the four largest private landowners in New Zealand were foreign owned forestry companies. So do you mm -hmm. think they mm. have an obligation to compensate people? Yes, I don't want to go down into whether they have an obligation to, to compensate people, but they do have an obligation to act as good citizens. Of that, there is no doubt. So when I talked about the social licence to operate, that's exactly what I was talking about. If you lose that social licence, then you're in big trouble. And what the forest industry now needs to do is build back that social licence by working with the local councils, working with key stakeholders, iwi, uh, community, landowners, to build back that social licence so everyone Minister, knows that the forestry that. is actually doing the right thing. The perception there is that they're not at this point in time, and we're keen to work with that. But, you know, just I'm not an apologist for the forest sector. As far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter who owns the forest. So if you're not an apologist, right why not bring in changes then? Why not compel them to act? We are bringing... This is exactly what this review is about. So it's a very short, sharp review. It's, it's two months. Minister Parker and I expect to have the recommendations in April. We will look at those very, very seriously and consider how we can implement these in a way that, again, starts that process of building back that social licence. Minister, I want, that's the third time you've talked about social licence. That's all very well and good, but when mm -hmm. your homes are ruined, the mm -hmm. crops are being damaged, print, uh, bridges mm -hmm. are down, don't you lose that argument of social licence and isn't it now about yes they're big employers, yes it's a 6.6 mm. .6 billion dollar industry, yes it's been a big mm. cyclone but don't, doesn't the game change now that we're in this situation? 
Just I don't think anyone wants to see the forest industry close down on Tauafiti or anywhere around the country. That is not what this is about. It is not either close down or end up where we are at the moment. There is a middle ground where we can have a thriving forest sector that employs a whole lot of people up and down the coast, both in silviculture, forest management, but also in downstream processing. And we can end up with communities that understand what the forest industry is doing and is working in a way to earn their trust back. It'll take a little while, Jess. I, I completely understand that. We're up for that as Minister for Forestry. I mean, I worked in the forest industry. I have a master's degree in forestry science. I understand this industry, but I also understand what has happened this year with two cyclones is absolutely not acceptable. Hence the reason why we will look to drive change in a way that mitigates the risk of this happening again. Minister, just one final question on forestry. I wanted to check with you. This is obviously mm. just looking at the Tairawhiti mm. area. It's not just a Gisborne problem. Mm. So mm. will you be looking with this inquiry, short and sharp as you called it, will you be looking mm. uh, to apply this mm. to the rest of New Zealand? It, it could well be that some of the recommendations out of this can apply to the forest industry across the country. But as mentioned, we're reviewing at this point in time the NESPF. That, those are the rules that, um, that govern uh, what must happen on harvesting sites. We're looking to expand that to the permanent forest category. So there is a lot of work going on in the forest sector, which you know I, I, I do admit, Jess, that, that those people in the community that aren't engaged in the sector wouldn't know about. But believe me, this is a... You know, the forestry is going to play a very important part in our economy and our communities going forward as we look to decarbonise our economy. We understand the value of forestry, we understand the value it can play in terms of jobs, in terms of uh, social outcomes, in terms of stabilising land, but we completely understand you have got to get the right tree, the right forestry management regime in the right place, because if right. you don't, if you get it wrong, you end up with what we've seen on the beaches of Tarawhiti, and that is unacceptable. Minister, I'd like you to switch hats now. I want to talk to you about uh, police. You're also, of course, the police minister. Mm. Did the government get it wrong mm. with Hawke's Bay when it downplayed what was happening on the ground? Look, there is no doubt when you get a situation where people lose power, lose telecommunications, uh, you know, there is a heightened sense of anxiety when people's communities have been taken out, when people, you know, see, uh, see looters there. There is a heightened sense of anxiety that the police know that they need to deal with. We all need to deal with it. It's the reason why we brought 145 extra men and women in blue into the region. We're using the, the Eagle helicopter. You know, the police are undertaking between five, 500 and 600 assurance patrols every single day. There's been 160 prosecutions. So let me tell the people of New Zealand and the people of Hawke's Bay, Jess, if the police find uh, these miscreants breaking the law in a way that completely erodes that social contract, they will be dealt with by the full force of the law. We will not tolerate any of the sort of antisocial behaviour that has gone on to a certain extent. But we have moved resources in here. I talk to the district commander a lot. I ask her about three or four times a week, have you got the resources needed to keep our community safe? And she says she has, but she, as mentioned, 145 extra men and women into the district. You talk about how people feel, Minister, and we've heard from people on the ground who mm. didn't want to be named but wanted to get this message mm. across. 
they said, don't believe anything that the mm. pollies in Wellington are saying. People are scared and there are ex-cops mm. manning checkpoints. They are saying that people are doing their own mm. checkpoints because they don't feel like there's enough of a police presence. Mm. Now, I'm anticipating your response here mm. and I'm fully aware that you don't have operational control <laughs> of the police. But from a planning and big picture point of view, when a, when a national mm. emergency state is called, shouldn't we be pumping mm. a whole lot of police into the region, not two weeks later, but, but immediately, to deal with this because people are feeling unsafe? Oh, we did, Jess. And, and look, I think it is unacceptable that people feel unsafe. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of these people. I know that feeling unsafe at a time of heightened stress because you lost everything is unacceptable again. It didn't take us two weeks to get 145 people in. Immediately, 120 officers were rushed in and we brought another 25 officers in. So it was an immediate response. Keeping in mind, there's about 500 officers across the region anyway. So we increased the numbers substantially. And I can tell you, you know, there are numerous examples where the community has feel, felt unsafe. The district commander, who is a very, very experienced officer, and she does a great job, Jeanette Park, she has gone out and she's talked to those communities, understood their anxiety, and as a consequence, she has sent patrols out to those regions in a way which hopefully has created a little bit of, a bit of confidence that the police have this under control. So will you be promising to send in more if there's another natural disaster like this? Because obviously 120 with an extra 25 wasn't enough to help people feel safe. Mm. Well, um, as you did mention, I don't have operational control and, and the men and women on the ground who do are very, very experienced police officers. It's the reason I ask them, have you got the resources needed to keep our community safe? And if they say to me, we have, that's fantastic. If they say they haven't, then I call up the commissioner, even though they have the ability themselves to bring in resources. You know, the Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins himself said, whatever it takes, when he was down here visiting police this week, he asked that same question, have you got the resources needed to keep our community safe? And he was told we have. But, but Jess, I, I don't want to downplay or underestimate the heightened sense of anxiety that a lot of the people across the region felt. And certainly in those first, that first week, when a whole lot of people had no power, no telecommunications. It was a really, really difficult time, and I don't want to downplay that. But, but I do believe that we do have the resources here now to keep people safe, but also lock up those terrible people who have been committing crimes in a way which is totally unacceptable to all our communities, let alone the rest of New Zealand. Minister, one thing that we have seen in the, in the wake of this is a real spike in family violence. When natural disasters mm. like this happen. Are there practical mm. steps, precise steps that you took to address this issue? Well, as, as you may or may not be aware, police take family uh, harm incredibly seriously. They have specialists in family harm. You know, in, in the old days, they'd knock on the door, say, everything okay here, nothing to see, they'd move off. They now spend up to three hours at every family harm situation just to make sure that they are putting the solutions and, uh, and, and the um, strategies in place to keep people safe. What we Minister, are saying is, goodness me, if you feel... Minister, I was asking about specifics to prevent it, though. What were the specifics to prevent it? Police do. It? Well, it, 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 it's very difficult to prevent family harm. And the reason I say that is, uh, you know, we have a situation of heightened stress here. Uh, people uh, find themselves in a situation that many have never found themselves in before. I don't know how you prevent it 
Jess, except to provide the level of support through MSD. They've been fantastic through civil defence. They've been really good through police services, as mentioned, 145. So we have rushed the services into the region that will allow people to access the sort of resources they need to, to at least get, get by for the next week. And I was talking to someone yesterday who said MSD has been absolutely fantastic. You go down, you say what they need, and they give you a voucher immediately. We've put in place an insurance resolution system. So if you need to claim insurance as a result of a natural disaster, we're going to make that a whole lot easier. So what we're trying to do as a government is reduce the stress on families in these really, really stressful times. Well, look, thank you very much for your time this morning, Minister. We'll let you get on. I'm sure you've got a busy day ahead of you and lots of people will be trying to take advantage of that sunshine. That was Police and Forestry Minister Stuart Nash. After the break, Fiji has endured four coups in 40 years. Could we see another? New Zealand's Pacific neighbour, Fiji, has been experiencing political turmoil. Sitavini Rambuka, a former coup leader, has once again won a democratic election, and he's making the most of that newfound power. One News Pacific correspondent, Barbara Drever, has been on the ground and filed this exclusive report. When Sitavini Rambuka wrested away power from fellow military man Frank Bainimarama, it was always going to be dramatic. I feel good, feel good about it, and I uh, feel very grateful and uh, very thankful. Thankful to the people, thankful to God. Riding high on the people's votes, but it wasn't always this way. In 1987, Lieutenant Colonel Sidavini Rambuka led two military coups, starting Fiji down a path of political upheaval. He was democratically elected five years later, but his legacy was creating a culture of coups, something he has repeatedly apologised for. Since then, I have committed myself to righting the wrongs of that day. Now the 74-year-old is once again leading the country, but it's a country that's had 16 years of authoritarian rule. The military coup of 2006, led by Frank Bainimarama, has reshaped Fiji. Soldiers were given positions of power. The traditional council of chiefs was abolished, freedom of speech squashed, and there was even a new constitution. This is what Fiji's new prime minister faces. Most of it, in fact all of it, has to be unraveled <laughs> for us to be able to get Fiji back on even keel and move it forward. Uh, it is not easy. It is difficult. The problem is Rambuka's victory was a close-run thing. He heads a fragile coalition. So politics in Fiji is often unpredictable, uh, quite fluid, and uh, the coalition in power is trying its best to hold the three parties together. And the Fiji First, with Ben Marama, uh, we've been trying to destabilise the coalition in every way possible. I'm uh, old enough to know that um, I cannot, I cannot uh, believe that, that everything is perfect. I must Don't expect that there will be elements uh, uh, that will yep. deliberately, for political reasons, try and destabilise the, uh, the coalition. But as far as I'm concerned, the support of those that we have in Parliament now is, is intact. Mm -hmm.
In the last two months, Frank Bainimarama and former Attorney General Ayaz Sayed Kuyum have not been idle. The former Prime Minister even lobbying the President to take action against the coalition government. When that failed, he took to Parliament. The President has failed to protect the Constitution, the rule of law, and failed to halt the resultant chaos that is insidiously and rapidly creeping in and the impending disaster that is going to befall upon our beloved country. He also made it clear he wanted the president to tell the RFMF, the military, to take action. As the commander-in-chief, he has failed to provide proper guidance to the RFMF. In short, Mr Speaker, he who previously espoused to subscribe to the values of the constitution has now tragically ignored the mockery the Rambuka-led government has made of constitutional democracy. Given Fiji's turbulent political history, it was hardly surprising he was kicked out of parliament for sedition and insulting the president. Honourable Josiah Mbainamarama be suspended from parliament for three years, effective immediately to be served until the 17th of February 2026. <laughs> It's not just Baini Marama in the firing line. Both he and former Attorney General Ayaz Sayed Kuyum have been questioned by police for abuse of office. A former acting PM, Kayum, was forced to surrender his seat in Parliament for taking up a different public office role. The Police Commissioner, Brigadier General Sidavini Angilio, has been suspended, as has Commander Francis Keane, head of prisons. The clean-up is underway. There were a lot of uh, nepotism, there were a lot of uh, patronage uh, and bad governance taking place, and these are just being unearthed. And uh, it will take a bit of time for that to uh, unfold. The Prime Minister says his relationship with the military is strong and he does not believe there is the appetite for another coup. But the military remains a powerful constitutional force. According to the 2013 Constitution, the military is tasked with protecting the well-being of Fiji. That's very subjective. Who gets to decide what well-being is and how concerned are you about that? Well, we have to have a look at that and, uh, and talk about it more with the, the uh, upper echelons of the, of the military. I think particularly their, their legal, uh, legal services and I'm sure they, they are now coming to realise that they cannot be uh, totally tasked with that. And that they have to work with the uh, political government and uh, the rest of the, of the nation. The first two months of office have been action-packed and there's more to come. Your critics will say that you're moving too fast, too soon. What do you say to them? How long can you uh, continue uh, living with cancer? So that's Barbara Drever, who'll be keeping across fallout in Fiji as it unfolds. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please do. You can contact us by email, Twitter or on Facebook. After the break, National has finally rele released details on its Three Waters policy. Will it, be, will it win over wavering voters? Welcome back. 
It's one of the biggest questions facing politicians right now. If the government's three waters reform don't happen, what happens instead? Pipes are bursting, cities are flooding, the cost of repairs is looking astronomical. And for more than a year now, National has been promising to repeal and replace the government's plan if they win the election. But replace it with what? This weekend, National finally released those plans and local government spokesperson Simon Watts joins me now. Thank you very much for being with me this morning. Morning, Jessica. What are your, what's your plans and your policy going to do that the government's isn't? Let's just have a look at that first. Yeah, absolutely. So we've announced our local water done well policy uh, yesterday. Four key components of that. One to uh, firstly repeal the three waters legislation that's on the table, get rid and scrap the mandated uh, co-governed mega entities, uh, restore council ownership and control, a key element and key point of difference, what uh, the sector has been calling for. Thirdly, really ensure that we've got strict water quality regulations, but also importantly, uh, strict uh, investment regulations, uh, which will ensure that money going in and collected uh, for water rates actually goes into water infrastructure and lastly uh, and, and I think the major point of difference is around ensuring that those plans for water services are financially sustainable because the challenge has been that money has been collected uh, across the country and areas but hasn't necessarily gone back into that investment. These entities need to be financially sustainable and we've got mechanisms that will allow them to do that. Let's go through the basics then. What will your plan do to the cost of water bills and to rates. Yeah, well look, it's, we're very clear on this, uh, that our uh, policy position will be cheaper uh, than Labor's uh, mega entity bureaucratic model, uh, which also has uh, complex co-governance. And I think a, a conga line of, of consultants and bureaucrats that are lining up in behind that uh, we acknowledge that you know pipes and investment uh, in infrastructure is going to need to occur. Our view is, is that uh, actually putting the power with local communities is going to be a cheaper uh, mechanism. Labor need to articulate uh, clearly how they're going to build all these new pipes and culverts without anyone paying for it. Uh, and we've been very clear that actually we're going to provide access to long-term uh, funding and financing mechanisms to match those long-term assets. Great. So what will your plan do to the cost of water bills and for rates? So our view is, is that it's definitely going to, uh, under our model, uh, rates are not going to increase. Uh, As much? In uh, are not going to increase in, compared, in comparison to Labor's uh, Three Waters model and the status quo. Uh, and uh, that is because uh, we're going to be uh, ensuring that these councils have financially sustainable plans and they have access to long-term debt funding. One of the major issues to date is, is that the borrowing for water infrastructure has been done on a short-term basis. We need to spread uh, that long-term borrowing to match long-term assets. These are assets that last 30, 40, 50 in some cases longer periods Great. and that's been the gap. So let me give you a scenario then. We have an area and they amalgamate with others, they uh, yep. become part of that council controlled organisation, they're allowed to borrow more because they're acting as a collective and then their population shrinks, uh, an industry closes down for example. What happens then? 
Yeah, look, our um, the conversations that we've had, I'll give you an example of Hawke's Bay, which has been uh, a group of four councils heavily impacted, as we know, in the last couple of weeks. Their proposal was to form a council-controlled uh, organisation of the four councils in that region. Uh, they had the model in place. They believed that they could deliver uh, all of the investment requirements in that region over the next 30 years and actually deliver some savings back to local ratepayers in terms of that model, uh, but the government wouldn't allow that. And so I think the, balance, the benefit of a regional council-controlled organisation is it does and will allow for changes within uh, different communities, which, as you articulate, will happen. Things are going to grow, things are going to get smaller in different parts of the country, but we need a mechanism that's flexible enough to deal with it. I just want to explain for anyone watching at home that perhaps doesn't understand what a council-controlled organisation is. It basically is when it's taken off the books um, from a council and because they're able to work together, they can they can borrow, effectively borrow more than they could just as a single entity. But yeah. we've seen examples of that. I mean, Auckland Watercare, for example, in Wellington, yeah. and it hasn't exactly been a stellar model of how things would work. So why do you think it would in this yeah, scenario? And, and I think that is fair because when you talk with ratepayers, there's real concerns around the fact that actually their revenue and their, their rates money going in to pay for these water assets hasn't necessarily occurred. Sometimes we've seen councils using that revenue to fund other nice-to-have things versus the actual water infrastructure. That's why we've got the investment regulator in place. That is really an important aspect in terms of making sure that we've got the right belts and braces around the overall model to make sure that these uh, councils are investing in water infrastructures. They're ring-fencing the revenue that they receive and it has to go back into uh, water infrastructure. They're making sure that they've got revenue sufficiency, which means that these entities can stand on their own two feet. And they also need to be able to deal with growth, right? So a number of our councils are growing um, and we need to be able to make sure that water infrastructure is not a blocker of more housing in this country, which it has been in some parts. You talk about belts and braces and when you take a step back, you're basically giving the control back to local councils, which arguably hasn't worked very mm. well. You're not figuring out a comprehensive and big picture way of investing in this infrastructure that, that the government says will cost a lot of money. It seems like you're making tweaks and not being brave because it's a politically contentious policy. Isn't this just tweaks? Absolutely not. I've spent the period of, of nearly the last two years out on the ground, more than 50 councils, working on with them and listening around what is the model that's going to provide a sustainable solution to water infrastructure. Uh, simply an ability of creating four mega bureaucratic engines and adding complex go-governance is actually going to add more costs to the system, not less. As we've seen with the delivery of the cyclones and the way in which local communities have responded and actually dealt with the challenges locally, central government in many cases has been too slow to respond. And so what we've seen in the last three weeks, I think, reinforces and evidences that local communities are best placed to deal with these local assets. We need to put the right measures in terms of regulation around them that they deliver water quality that is an appropriate safe standard, uh, investment regulation around making sure that money coming in goes onto those water infrastructures, and their plans are financially sustainable because financial sustainability is a key difference between the status quo uh, and Labor's three uh, uh, waters model. That is the key aspect that will ensure that what these councils do today is going to last for the next 30 years. What do you say to the argument then that 
the councils haven't really done a great job. There are some exceptions, yep. but haven't really done a great job of managing this. Why would you give them back control? Look, I think actually in the main, most councils actually have done a good job. And there is a large number of councils across this country that are doing a good job. But there are councils uh, that have not uh, performed and have not invested in water infrastructure. That's why our plan, Local Water Done Well, ensures that we've got investment regulation in place to make sure that that is occurring. We've got the water quality regulation and we've got the requirement for them to come back to the Minister of Local Government within a year with a plan to demonstrate financial sustainability. And we're going to give them the mechanisms or work with them on the mechanisms to allow long-term funding to match long-term assets. It's much cheaper um, in terms of from a ratepayer point of view to spread the cost over 30 years and spread it over three years. And today it's spread over three years. And so it's quite a, you know, from a basic point of view of, of cost, uh, you know, that's why we think our model is, is more financially sustainable. What about though for some of those cash-strapped councils who then look and think, oh, well, let's sell off these water yeah. assets? Well, look, uh, if you're talking about privatisation, our model is absolutely categoric. There will be no privatisation of water assets. These assets belong in local community control and ownership. That is a bottom line uh, and it is categoric within our plans. And you know, there'll be absolutely no room or conversation around that. What about PPPs? Uh, we've been absolutely clear around the fact, again, that any privatisation of these assets is, is off the table. The local communities and councils will be given the responsibility to put together a structure that is financially sustainable. We are not going to mandate to them how they do that. It is up for them to determine the structure, but also, more importantly, how they govern those assets. Because I think um, our viewers talking to our communities is as these are assets that they have paid for over years and years, uh, and they want to be involved with that decision-making process. Let's talk about governing. What scares you about co-governance? Look, we've been very clear around the fact that we absolutely do not support the mandation of co-governance of public services. And our model uh, places the responsibility of how water assets are governed with local communities. Those local uh, councillors are democratically elected by their ratepayer, uh, and that is the group of individuals that needs to determine how those assets are governed. Uh, Co-governance has been a divisive uh, uh, conversation uh, that has been uh, amplified by uh, the government's three waters policy. Uh, the feedback and the, and the response from the public is very clear uh, around the, the opposition of that topic. We've taken it completely off the table. It is not for central government to mandate. It's for local communities but to decide. But what makes you nervous about it? Why are you against it? We absolutely believe that it is not going to deliver better water infrastructure and better water services for consumers what about, or for the New Zealand public. What about the treaty obligations though? We absolutely acknowledge that there is rights and interests for water but communities and councils already have really strong and robust relationships with Māori and iwi and hapu across the country. It is not for central government to try and come in and dictate that relationship. We Councils have that relationship already and we're empowering them to work with uh, Māori, iwi and hapu to make sure that they are as involved and engaged as they need to be to make sure that these water services are delivered appropriately. You said that it has been a divisive issue and the Prime Minister has been quite vocal pointing fingers at the National Party for contributing to that. Do you feel like the National Party's done everything it can to try and soften and explain what co-governance means to people? Absolutely. And I want to give an example in Select Committee because when, I, when a Potiki District Council came to us and said the three iwi and a Potiki 
District Council co-signed the agreement with the Pauraki District Council in opposition to Three Waters and the government's opposition, uh, government's Three Waters program. Why? Because they had significant concerns around loss of local voice, loss of local ownership. It's that community aspect and that community relationship that is so important. And so we've heard across the board opposition from iwi around uh, the co-governed model uh, and our model places that back uh, in the responsibility of councils and local communities and that's where those decisions should be made. Because basically what your policy is doing is it's giving control back to councils, it's uh, compelling them to come up with a financial plan and it's taking away co-governance. A lot of people will say look this has been a really expensive issue for a really long time, mm. it needs a big picture response to this. Do you feel like this response that you're presenting that you say you know you've been working on for a really long time is dynamic enough to deal with the complexities of these issues? Well the key litmus test of this is is it going to work or is it not right uh, and the challenge with the status quo model by Labour uh, around the complex co-governance is, is that no one buys into it. And they isn't that the problem though isn't it that they just haven't sold the no, policy? They right? haven't they haven't listened to the people that understand this issue the best and that is those on the ground within our communities. We've undertaken a bottom-up process to put together this policy, not a top-down. Uh, and through those conversations with communities across this country, we have listened to what they believe will work and what, what they believe will do. That's what we've delivered. On top of that, we've put in place the regulation which makes sure that we have certainty at a central government level that we will deliver high quality and safe drinking water, we'll get the investment that is required, and most importantly, it'll be financially sustainable. There are tools and techniques in terms of how we fund and finance that we've put on the table, and we will work, as I've said right from the start, we will work with local government, not against it. We have to get that partnership and a degree and build that trust because that is a key element of why we are where we are today. You come from a finance background, so this probably is bread and butter for you, but a lot of people will be thinking, oh, we're just passing on debt to future generations. What's yeah. your response to that? Well, there's no magic money tree. Right, the challenge with the Labour's three waters policy, as I said, they're going to build all these pipes and culverts, but they haven't articulated who's going to pay for them. Um, and you know that is simply not the reality. Uh, investment uh, costs money, uh, and our view is, is that we need to spread that investment over the life of the assets because the pipes that we put in the ground today will benefit you know my children in 30 years from now. So we need to spread that amount of investment. That makes sure that the overall cost is less on ratepayers today and in the future, uh, and we get that stuff done. We can't just simply, exp um, you know, make this. And I've heard the prime minister use these numbers around eight thousand dollars of rates increasing. Well, they're based on, you know, with respect, shonky assumptions from the Scottish Water Authority, assumptions around operational savings, sixty percent operational savings with no reduction in headcount. You don't need to be an accountant or anyone in finance to go, well, that doesn't really sound that realistic. And they aren't. It is simply implausible. And independent analysis has also said that the government's savings numbers are completely implausible. And, you know, I think Kiwis can see through that. I do want to ask you a bigger picture question. Driving around New Zealand over summer, there were lots of signs about national repealing three waters. This is your first big, national's first yeah. big policy of election year. Do you really think that there's a big group of people who are going to be voting just on this three waters issue? What are you hearing on the ground? 
absolutely, when I travel around the country, particularly in rural and provincial New Zealand, the uh, concerns around loss of control of their water assets is significant. The implication of mandating co-governance uh, into local communities is a significant issue. It's amplifying that lack of trust between our communities and government. Uh, and more importantly, people want to see water being dealt with in a bipartisan manner. It needs to be dealt with in a way that is sustainable, that we actually increase investment. Everyone in Parliament and everyone around the country agrees that more investment is required. It is a question of how we achieve that and how we make sure that is achieved in a sustainable manner. And my belief is, is that our policy will achieve that and will deliver those outcomes. Well, that's a nice place to leave it. Thank you very much for being with me this morning. That's National's local government spokesperson, Simon Watts. But stay right where you are. We'll have live reaction to that interview from two key local mayors after the break. We just heard National's plan for Three Waters and ultimately they boil down to keeping control in the hands of councils and ditching co-governance. But is their approach the right one? We're joined now by Waimakariri Mayor Dan Gordon and Lower Hutt Mayor Campbell Barry. Thank you both very much for being with us this morning. I want to read out a few disclosures first, just to get them out of the way. Labour-affiliated Campbell Barry is part of the government's working group on Three Waters reform, as well as being the chair of the Wellington Water Committee. Dan Gordon is the co-chair of the Communities for Local Democracy group, which formed an opposition to the reform. So we'll get both sides of the debate here on Q&A this morning. But I want to start off, Dan, by first of all asking you about this recent court case. You went to court trying to get property rights declarations over water infrastructure. It was knocked down. But what's going to happen now? Uh, good morning, Jessica, and thank you for having us on board. Firstly, can I say, really welcome National's policy. It's in line with the direction that we have largely, well, we've been advocating for some time and welcome that announcement. On the court case, uh, it was made clear actually by the judge that the government is in fact expropriating our assets without compensation. So we were encouraged by the messaging. We're going to consider our options at the present time, but the messaging in that court case should be very troubling for the government uh, and that they haven't followed the process correctly. And in actual fact, they are depriving communities of their assets. So considering an appeal? We sure are. Uh, Campbell, you didn't join that court action. Why not? Uh, for me, our uh, focus needs to be on solving the problem in front of us, and that is decades of underinvestment in our water infrastructure, the quality of water uh, across the country, uh, trying to best uh, form a structure, uh, move forward, uh, which, which is going to be in the interest of all, all of New Zealand. So that's been uh, my focus. Uh, I've got to say I was confused uh, once I read the National Party policy. Uh, there was a lot of rhetoric around... Uh, the need uh, to move away from the status quo, that it's not an option, but in essence what's been put forward is the status quo with a couple of big sticks for the government to be able to use, which I, I find disappointing. So do you feel like it is more tweaks rather than comprehensive changes, Campbell? 
there's nothing in what the National Party have put forward uh, that councils couldn't have done 10, 20 years ago in forming council-controlled organisations. In the Wellington region, we've actually done that. Uh, we know the limitations of it. Yes, there are some benefits, uh, but still there is a tsunami of cost uh, on the way when it comes to the investment needed in water infrastructure in this country. And unless you change or you address the funding issue, then that will mean massive rates bill increases or water bill increases uh, for our residents. So that is the fundamental issue that hasn't been addressed. Dan, I want to put this to you. Your council aside, um, Waimakariri has made significant investment in infrastructure, but councils on the whole haven't done a great job of controlling these water assets. Why should they get that control? Well, firstly, I don't accept that premise, and, and nice to be on with you, Campbell, but respectfully, we disagree. I think the National Party's policy actually makes it really clear that it returns that uh, effective control and influence to councils where it should be. There's a regulatory backstop, which is something that we uh, came up with, and I'm pleased the National Party has adopted that, which actually will be the stick there for councils. If councils want to get together and have regional CCOs, that will be their business. But one size does not fit all. In this situation, we were actually working uh, together as a Canterbury uh, area to, to look at that exact model, the same in the Hawke's Bay. And then the government came along and said there was choice, and then they removed that choice uh, by mandating it. The, the case um, for change, we, we, we accept that. There is now Tamata Arawai in place, which is the water regulator, which wasn't in place. In the case of our council, the numbers just simply don't add up. We've got $300 million of uh, investment that we have identified over the next seven years. The case put forward by the government says we're a billion short. The numbers are just shonky and don't add up. And what we're saying is actually just return this decision back to local councils so we can work together on a solution. What we ideally want to see is consensus. And I've been encouraged by the message by the Prime Minister that they're going to take a fresh look our door is open for that discussion because we want to end this division in a country that's existing on this and see if we can find a way that we can all uh, get reform that works for all of us. It's really clear New Zealanders do not support this. The most recent poll, 7 out of 10 New Zealanders say that they do not support this reform. But you do Let's need to... Work together. With the smaller councils, though, they have been struggling with these water assets, so that it's not going to work for them. Do you have confidence that they should be the ones to manage these assets, though? But yes, I do, because I work with those councils, and we, we, we've got CCOs in place. We have shared service arrangements where we can work together and help each other in that space. You think a bloated bureaucracy is seriously going to fix this and put the pipes in the ground? Actually, at the end of the day, what, we've, what I've seen in this policy is not only a regulatory backstop, but also a funding mechanism where those councils go through and identify in the next 12 months, if they're not in a position to be able to afford that themselves, there's a mechanism in which we can come together as regions or there's a funding mechanism proposed by the National Party to assist those particular councils. It's much more transparent than what the government's putting forward in this entity-based model, which frankly is just going to be a bloated bureaucracy and it won't deliver the, 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 um, the change that people are, are expecting to see. Right. We want to work to make sure that this works. Campbell, 
I want to put this to you because the government's obviously going to be making some changes to its three waters policy. Is there some kind, <clears throat> excuse me, is there some kind of middle ground that they could take on some of the things suggested by National? How would you like to see the government making changes when it announces those shortly? I, th I think there's always been some really fair concerns around um, local accountability, responsiveness. Uh, a number of us have been trying to uh, work in a positive way with the government to try and address those issues. Um, but what I would say is, again, that the National Party policy does not address the fundamental reason why we need reform, and that is around funding, the affordability for local communities to be able to um, pay for the, the tsunami of costs that's coming. It's not just funding the status quo, it's actually the huge costs as our country continues to get older that will need to be funded. And in my view, it sets us up for, for two futures uh, if we went with that option. A future of failure when it comes to infrastructure because councils simply aren't in the position to fund it, uh, or a future of skyrocketing rates bills or water bills for particularly our provincial and rural communities, uh, which would be the biggest losers, I think, without um, serious reform and looking at uh, those economies of scale. Uh, the government's proposal was looking at um, a million people per entity, and the idea behind that is to ensure that you have that economies of scale to be able to spread some of that cost, uh, to get the investment where it's needed, uh, and to address the funding issue. And that's so paramount in this whole debate. What about if the government just extends some of those? So instead of four, we perhaps see eight or ten. We would still have the economies of scale, but without those, those that bloated bureaucracy that Dan talked about before. What do you think of that suggestion? Oh, I would be interested to see where the government does come back on uh, having a relook at their current policy. I mean, I've looked at you know, all of the information on this uh, for over a number of years. And it does show from a financial point of view, the more people you have uh, to, to fund, the, the cheaper it's going to be uh, across the board and the ability for these entities or whatever they look like to be able to borrow. So th that will be a trade-off, I suppose, if you may, you may have more regional type entities, um, but the cost will be higher. Um, but I think Simon Watts speaking earlier, I was, I was a little bit shocked to, to suggest that, for him to suggest that rates won't go up because under any option, costs are going to go up. It's just a, a matter of by how much. I just want to put a final question to both you, Campbell, and you, Dan. I'll start with you, Campbell, first. Uh, with the voting and uh, with the election coming up in October, do you think that people are really going to be voting on Three Waters? Is it that big an issue? And what are your thoughts on that? And then I'll come to you, Dan. I think one thing the government hasn't done well is explain uh, the rationale and, and the need for three water reform. I think when I talk to people uh, in my community in Lower Hutt, what they care about is that they can drink water out the tap, that when they flush the toilet it's going to the right place and that we can deal with stormwater in a, in a rain event. That's what they care about. I actually don't think this is as big of an issue uh, which has been played out in the politics of it. I think often actually around the co-governance side of things that's been weaponised um, for political capital. Uh, and ultimately, for me, uh, people just want us to get this right uh, and to ensure that that infrastructure is up okay. to scratch. And sadly, too often in New Zealand, we politicise uh, long-term infrastructure investment. Dan, I'll just get your response to that too. Are we going to be voting on this? Are lots of people going to be voting on this come October? Yes, we are. It is one of the biggest issues uh, in the country. And as I mentioned earlier, the poll showed 7 out of 10 New Zealanders don't support this. What we've been arguing from the start is let's come together. Let's, on reform as important as this is, there should be bipartisan support and across parties. And we've worked with every parliamentary political party, including New Zealand First, 
to explain where our thinking is at. And with the desire to bring everyone together, I'm very encouraged with where the National Party's uh, direction is. And I say to the government, our door is open. We want to talk with you and we want to see if we can find a solution. Encouraged by the Prime Minister's words and the Minister for Local Government, now is the time we could come together and build consensus right. and end the division. All right, well, thank you both very much for your time this morning. Stick around and we'll be right back after the break. That's Q&A for this week. Jack will be back with you again next week. Thank you for the, from the Q&A team, both here in the studio and in the control room. Hey, Tera Wiki, see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.